we are uh, we're going to have kind of a interesting, fun little exercise today because the formula of Concord dealt with something that maybe we've all kind of wondered a little bit about whenever we say uh, the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell, and what exactly that meant, and why is that of comfort to us as Christians, why do we keep it there, when it seems to be somewhat, it isn't, it isn't I guess you may say, attested to by a multitude number of scriptures. But nevertheless, uh, we're going to take a shot at it today and explain a little bit of the reasoning behind why it was there in the formula of Concord and why we as Christians keep it uh, even today. Should we start with a, uh, a word of prayer? Dear Lord and Savior Jesus, you entered into the very dominion of the one who has placed us in chains. And by invading his fortress, you have thereby also taken away all of his weapons. Remind us, O Lord, that your conquest over sin and death and the devil is complete, that we as Christians can live a triumphant life now, and that the weapons that would be used against us of accusing our conscience are now no longer weapons at all, for you have disarmed him by your own descent. And we pray that your resurrection would be for us an eternal and a lasting reminder that the victory has been won. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, um, so nice to see everybody. Hasn't it just been, I have to just, isn't it just been wonderful that we've actually started to have spring now? Um, about a month late, but um, well, it, it, when it comes, it only makes us all the more appreciative, doesn't it? Um, even, even the Bible talks about suffering as a prelude to uh, the joy and the, and the ecstasy that goes along with um, what comes after. Um, this descent into hell is something that um, a lot of people have asked about, but nobody seems to be too upset about if they don't seem to quite get the right answer. Um, as, I, as we have talked before, the formula of Concord was um, written at a time where there had been an enormous amount of, I guess you might say, difference, sometimes diversity, but sometimes even contention among Lutheran theologians shortly after the Reformation or the death of Luther. And, of course, uh, the conquest of the imperial forces of the, of the Habsburg emperors uh, was intended to bring Lutherans back to being Roman Catholics again. That was, there was a, I guess you might say, a compromise agreement that was made, the Augsburg or the, the Leipzig interim, and, um, and this was not something that achieved its purposes because like in almost everything, um, whenever you have two parties that are at odds with each other, if you come up with a compromise, uh, neither party is happy. And the Romanists wanted to be able to have a complete return back to Rome and the authority of Rome and all the ceremonies and even the doctrine and theology of Rome, of works righteousness. And, um, and the Lutherans were not content because they felt as though the things that they had, quote, compromised had been done so under duress 
and that um, in many respects that their consciences had been compromised and um, they believed that it was not just a matter of what they called adiaphora, that is, that this was something neither commanded nor forbidden, that actually by virtue of the fact that they had been told that this had to be done otherwise, it was an or else, or even to the point of saying that these things were necessary for salvation. Well, the type of robes that pastors wear, the cinctures and how they tie their cinctures, Lutherans could not imagine that those kinds of things might have something to do with the effectiveness of the pastoral office. Uh, they could not imagine that if anybody came along and said that you had to immerse a person to be baptized, which is not so much the Roman Catholic view but the, but the Reformed view, that if you had to be immersed to be, to be properly baptized, their point would be that the emphasis should be on the power of the Word, not the quantity of the water in baptism. And so, for us, for many of us, then baptism became a matter of sprinkling, right? Where we said, because you're trying to bind our conscience on these things or bind our conscience to the idea that we're not legitimately baptized unless we're immersed, they said, we will never immerse. So there are a number of things that came up as, as issues. And when these theologians came together in Magdeburg, right outside of Magdeburg, they finally were able to develop, I guess you might say, the wording, the clarity, the scriptural accuracy. They were looking also back to Luther to say, all right, Luther, how did you handle this? And they came together, and that formula of Concord then became the document that they could all agree with. And if, they, if somebody didn't agree with it, it also gave them a basis for talking with them and working with them and saying, this is what the Scripture says. So this descent into hell. How many of you have, as you have said that, have kind of wondered what in the heck did he do or what is that? I mean, did you, have you ever raised that question? Yeah. Um, I, I think most of us would kind of leave it in the hands maybe of the ancient church because this has been something that has been repeated um, by all the early church fathers and it was kept in the creed. But um, permit me to let, take you through this outline, if I, if I might. We've said that there was a, a significant amount of unity among the Lutheran theologians and what this meant. And they actually ascribed, uh, this, was, this is one of those things, confessional unity necessitated that they accept this. That's a little bit different than saying... Um, what do you think was going on, say, for instance, um, where do you suppose that Mary Magdalene lived? You'd go, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe she lived in a house. And you'd say, well, I kind of thought she lived in a tent, or I thought she lived over in a village outside of town, or no, she lived in Jerusalem. We would all say what? Does it really matter? Uh, but when it comes to the descent of Jesus into hell, they were saying, no, this is something that we have to adhere to and we have to keep in the creed. And they, by saying it's confessional, it means this is something that we hold people's conscience to. As I mentioned before, it was the confession of the ancient church, but the Reformed, 
Christians, many of them deleted it from the Apostles' Creed, and many of the Roman Catholic theologians had a different understanding of what it meant. And so they said, we got to talk about it. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 here, to find this text. It seems to kind of just pop out at, as St. Peter um, is speaking here, first of all, about it's an awful lot about suffering. And um, in verse 15, he says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This, this is, um, you know, kind of apart from this issue of the descent into hell. Uh, we've mentioned before that we're all supposed to be confessors, right? We're all supposed to uh, be willing to confess our faith. And some have thought, well, you know, if you really take that to its full conclusion, you've got to kind of do what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. You've got to go out and knock on those doors and you have to make a confession of your faith. And um, I don't see a whole lot of Missouri Synod Lutherans out knocking on doors. Some of that, if, would you think you'd be afraid to do that? Yeah. yeah. Embarrassed. You embarrass. I, uh, You know, um, when, I, when I was at the Springfield Seminary, um, my son's father-in-law was also a, at least he was a roommate of mine, but became a very close friend of mine at the seminary. This is what happens in the Missouri Synod. Pastors try to get their kids to marry the kids of other pastors. I don't know what it is, but it's just kind of like, well, they speak our language. You know, that's it's kind of a culture thing, maybe. But anyway, so Hans and Katie eventually got married. and um, But Glenn, uh, Katie's dad, had been involved in something called Ongoing Ambassadors for Christ. How many of you have heard of Ongoing Ambassadors for Christ? They're just a, did you ever use them? You had a weekend or something like that? Did, did they all go out and make calls? Yeah. This, uh, this guy named Fred Darko uh, was the head of it, and he was a, a bold fellow. And he got young uh, high school type kids and they would have a weekend and they'd go to a church and they would go out like on a Saturday and they would knock on doors and Glenn said to me, why don't you come along? And, and I went real willingly um, <laughs> because we were going to have to go door to door. It was really, it, it helped me a lot because it actually kind of, you know how it kind of breaks the ice? You know, and so we'd go out and we would knock on doors. Hello, I'm with, we're with such and such a Lutheran church. And I don't even quite remember all the things that we said, but there's usually something that starts off like maybe a vacation Bible school survey or something like that. And then could I ask you a question, you know, and then you use maybe the Kennedy questions. You, is that what they did? Okay, yes, I think it was, it was, um, do your feet feel hot? 
um, you know, because there's hellfire underneath there, you know. No, I don't think it was anything quite like that. But, but it was maybe one of those questions kind of like, if you were to die, would you go to heaven, and then why? And most people will say, you know, they'll say, well, I, I think I will. And you say, well, why? And they'd say, what? I've tried to live a good life, and I'm not as bad as those people who are murderers. And, and you go, I've got good news for you. <laughs> You'd never be able to go to heaven on the basis of your good works. And then, you know, the, you, a witness of the gospel. And it's amazing that actually sometimes it actually did some very positive things. But that's not generally the Lutheran way. But the Lutheran way is this. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And what you do is you open up your heart and your mind and you let yourself be ready if somebody says, what is it that you believe? We have an Uber driver in our midst. And you know, he, we're finding out that an Uber driver can make a pretty doggone good confession to people. You know, when people um, go to the barber, which I haven't done lately, um, <laughs> when, when they go to the barber, you know, sometimes after that, they're clipping the hair, you know, they, they tell them what's on their heart. I know that when ladies, when you go to those salons and you get your hair done too and you're, you're washing or whatever, that that's how, why it is that when you go to those places that you find out all the gossip in town because everybody just shares it right then there in the and and counselors but not too often pastors but people sometimes open up and and talk and they are going to you're going to find that sometimes they'll talk at the strangest moments uh, and if you're ready if you're prepared to be able to open up and speak of your faith. Yeah, he says, always be prepared. Be ready. Now, what this has to do with the descent into hell, I don't know. But he goes on. He says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. In other words, very often because you're a Christian, and you're going to, I think we're finding this more and more, people want to say bad things about you if they feel that you're a Christian. It's, it happens. Um, you Christians, you're judgmental. Really? Um, you Christians, you think you're better than everybody else. We do? And maybe sometimes there are people out there under the name of Christian that do say and do things that would be interpreted in that way. But most often, what it is, it's a straw man, and somebody sets it up, and we as Christians end up having to deal with a false perception of who we are. And he says, be very, very careful about what you say or, or do so that people can't use that as, as fodder for their slander. But then he goes on to say, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, 
the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Once and for all. That destroys the theology of the, um, of the sacrifice of the Mass, which is that Christ is, is actually being sacrificed continuously. That's a Roman Catholic view. Once for all. All sins have been paid for. He died at that cross. All of humanity was pardoned, right? And then we go on. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is what we call the substitutionary death or atonement of Christ. To bring you to God, he, and this must be what that second part means, to bring you to God so that you could be brought to God. Where have you been so that you couldn't be brought to God? That's a question. You have been, say, nowhere? If you are by nature a child of wrath, under whose power are you? On the devil's power. He, put to, he was put to death. He died for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, which means that therefore he had to destroy the power of the, of the devil. And that's probably why we find that there's a sequence in, in this. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now this is where it really throws us off, because it looks as though Jesus, by the, in his Spirit, goes all the way back to the days of Noah, and there it is that he is preaching, or that he is preaching possibly to so-called imprisoned spirits. That is the difficulty of the text. The righteous for the unrighteous put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit, through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. All right. Well, let's, um, let's see what the Lutheran theologians said about that. They did not accept the interpretation of the reform that was based on Psalm 16.10. If you want to go to Psalm 16.10, we'll see if we can make it. It's a long ways back there. Psalm 16.10. It says, I'll, re, I'll back up to verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The word grave is the word sheol. And sheol sometimes is suggested as hell, but other times simply the grave. And some would say, therefore, that this meant, this descent into hell only meant that Jesus was buried. Right? And that he was, therefore, his body was, if you will, put into the grave of of, uh, of that, uh, that cave. So, um, is, that, is that all it meant? You know, in that case, I guess for some people, if it, if it meant that he was only put into the tomb, then what's the big deal in putting, making it an article of faith? It's not. I mean, we, are, we believe, that he, we, in fact, we even say it in the creed, he was buried. Why say it twice? 
Secondly, they held that Acts 2.24 referred to the resurrection. So let's jump over to Acts 2.24, if that's okay. This is uh, Peter at Pentecost, preaching here at Pentecost. Uh, we'll, um, we'll back up here. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And here comes verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for, he, for death to keep its hold on him. And some would just simply say, it just is a reference to the fact that he had died and that somehow death had this grip, that he descended into Sheol, that he descended into death or the grave. And the Lutheran said that's not what that text means. Well, they, they started off by saying, as all good theologians would, what did it not mean? What did it not mean? They believed that it was not mythological. A story, as they say, contrived to represent a philosophical idea. It's kind of like, uh, how many of you have, um, have uh, read... The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, those of us who would like to live in the world of elves and dragons. Um, and what a, what, a, uh, what a thrilling thing it was. Now, of course, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and all these guys, they call them the Inklings. They, um, they, they actually got, got into this. I don't know if you've ever heard this. They, they got into this by reading... Icelandic uh, uh, tales or lore, mythology, in the original language of Icelandic. And they said that when they started reading Icelandic, that a feeling came over them called northernness. I think it has something to do with the idea that when you read it, you want to take off your shirt and stand out, in, you know, kind of like uh, being a Green Bay Packer fan. You just take off your shirt in the cold and you, ah, you know, you stand this day. And this is what it is that, that they kind of started getting. But it, the Islamic um, mentality was mythology, right? That one is dealing with gods and one is dealing with these mythical creatures and that there's a struggle of evil against good and good against evil and ultimately a victory that takes place uh, through some sort of cosmic battle for some they wanted to be able to say, well, this, this descent of Jesus into hell is kind of like mythology. Um, you know, where Poseidon is or whoever the Greek gods might be. It just tells us kind of a story. And they saw a danger to that, right? What would the danger be? That if the descent into hell was mythological, what about the resurrection? And that's exactly where it is that liberalism subsequently went. That you believe that the Bible was true insofar as it was mythology. So, we get all of our, the names for our days, you know, come not out of Greek and not out of 
out of Latin Europe. Our days come from those uh, Saxon, um, that Saxon mythology. Um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, those names actually are uh, things that we have inherited from that culture. So, yeah, we're not, we're not um, mythological. There's a little difference between that and symbolical. A symbol is a metaphor or an analogy that we say points to a higher truth. And this guy named Swingley, Ulrich Swingley, you know, he had been a Roman Catholic priest. Swingley had been. And um, he, of course, was there. Uh, he had originally, uh, he was from Switzerland, and he, uh, he had this idea. Uh, Luther had quite a debate with him on the subject of the real presence. Um, Swingley died on the battlefield. He confused church and state. And he wanted to be able to advance the cause of the Reformation by means of the sword. But um, always in Reformed theology, there's always kind of this, um, this idea that, um, how would you say, that, that maybe the kingdom of God can come on earth by means of the way in which we bring it about by force. Kind of like those zealots that Jesus had that wanted to be able to bring the kingdom of God by means of power. Um, Swingley regarded the descent into hell as something which was symbolic. Then there was the pre-incarnational experience of Christ that some held. And although this had never been taught by any Lutherans, or not, certainly not by the majority of the church fathers, it had been taught by Thomas Aquinas, who was kind of the I guess you might say the supreme theologian of Rome, and Theodore Bitsa, who was the supreme theologian of, in Geneva, where the Reformed had their, strongest, their stronghold, that Jesus had, in this pre-incarnate time of his, had actually gone and preached the gospel prior to the time that he had become incarnate. Well, um, what also did they reject? that this was just simply a way to refer to Jesus' death. And that's why I say most Reformed theologians, a number of them, took them, this as symbolic. And that Jesus had gone and preached salvation to either Old Testament saints or to the heathen who had died before his appearance. Roman, the Roman Catholic Church had an interesting doctrine. They called it limbus partum, land for the devout Jewish believers where Jesus preached in order to release them so that they could enter paradise. Uh, kind of this idea being that here in the Old Testament that they didn't know Jesus, right? You've heard people sometimes have this idea. In the Old Testament, people were saved by their works. In the New Testament, people were saved by faith. Is that true? Even Adam and Eve were saved by their faith, right? And all the way through the entire Old Testament you still have a beautiful theology in the Old Testament that is salvation by faith. They just simply put their faith in the one who was yet to come. We put our faith in the one who has come. And it's the same faith. Well, if you kind of were of this idea, almost kind of a dispensation kind of thing, like they 
uh, they, had, they didn't really know who Christ was. Christ came. Well, how in the world are they going to be saved? Well, maybe their spirits went into limbo. And there in limbo, they were just kind of waiting as spirits. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when you go to the, to the football game, all the guys and all the girls are just kind of standing out there waiting to get into the bathroom. You know, long line. There they were, just standing there in the long line, waiting for the opportunity to be able to hear about Jesus, but they were spirits. What does that mean? Souls? And then Jesus went and preached to them. Oh, hey, wait a minute. That's Jesus? Oh, okay, we believe in him. Up to paradise you go. Where's that taught in the Bible? Well, these are the so-called logical deductions that people make when they start coming up with ideas like this where they're making suppositions that are not taught in Scripture. And of course, if you believe in works righteousness, if you believe that you are saved by your works, and you want to be able to make sure that you do enough, if you go to this in-between place, then what you can do is you can always find a way to be able to maybe pick up some works or somebody can maybe do something for you on earth. You heard, of course, those indulgences, right? Where in an indulgence, there would be a credit that would be applied to somebody who had died. And if your papa or your mama had been kind of bad folk and you wanted to be able to make sure if they got to heaven, they didn't have to spend a couple hundred thousand years in purgatory, you simply bought an indulgence. And... Um, you can see why it is that that came to be a problem for Martin Luther, right? As he began to discover the gospel ever more clearly. So this is this kind of this, this thing that's in the background there and why this teaching of the descent into hell mattered. They're going to have to dispel any notion that there were pre-incarnate spirits that were sitting there waiting for an opportunity to be able to hear the gospel. If... Um, I guess you might say it's so closely tied to the notion of works righteousness that it too became part of the gospel. All right, move on. What then did the Lutherans believe? The teaching was connected intimately to Christ's saving work, therefore a part of the gospel, and that it was scriptural. You know, a lot of things are taught in the scriptures that we don't fully understand. And sometimes we just got to let it be at that. He descended into hell. He just did. But there's always a stinker, right? We call it the fly in the ointment. There was a, uh, the city of Hamburg was a very important, powerful um, force in the Reformation. Uh, it, was a, it was almost an invulnerable city. Uh, it was not a, a city that was easily conquered by the Roman forces, and so therefore the confession of Hamburg meant a lot to the Lutherans. But there was this guy who was the head pastor there in Hamburg, and he had a series of sermons, John Apinius. Ap 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 in uh, 1554, there was a series of sermon lectures where he maintained that the descent of Jesus was actually part of his humiliation. Let me illustrate this a little bit. And um, um, I, I do this for my confirmation classes. Um, 
when we say the creed, um, I believe that Jesus Christ, uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. All right? Now comes the part about he descended into hell. Is that one of these where it was a part of his humiliation? Was where he steps down, where he declines to use his, all the divine powers that have been uh, are available and given to him that he possesses as the divine son of God. Well, we see that in these types of things, he is in, in going into his humiliation, which therefore means this is all necessary for our redemption. But they said, no, the descent into hell is actually a part of his exaltation. He rose, right? And he ascended into heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand, right? So this is the exaltation. This is the exaltation. Here is his humiliation. Okay. This is always where he is taking back or he is, the victory has been won and he is now claiming everything that the church now can possess. So the descent has to actually be a part of his victory. And it's not, I mean, Jesus gives us an illustration. He says, what you got to do is when, when, when you go up against your enemy, you have to break into their stronghold and take them captive. So Jesus is actually destroying the power of the devil in his ascent. Somebody would say he entered into hell as proof of his victory, but even more than that, that Satan's power has now been destroyed. His, as we said in the prayers, his weapons are gone. And what is, the, what is the weapon of the devil? Number one, it says in the book of Hebrews that the way that the devil holds the entire world in check is through its fear of death. So you say, all right, descent into hell. That means that I may live my life never being afraid of death. That means when you get into that Uber car, you don't have to ever be afraid that that Uber driver is going to have an accident and you're going to die. Should we point out who our Uber driver is? <laughs> Would the Uber driver please raise his hand? <laughs> all right, all right, there he is. Okay, our witness. Um, that's what he says to, you know, people get into the car like that. And he just says, you know, if you're a Christian and when I have an accident, you won't have to worry about dying. <laughs> so assuring. <laughs> But think about this. The, the, the hymn, the strife is o'er, the battle's done. 
We, none of us need to worry anymore. Everything has been paid for. When we stand before the throne of God, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So, that's what that means. Let's uh, look onward. The Lutheran said, look, when Jesus said, it is finished, it was. All sin had been paid for. So the idea that Christ continued his suffering as though it was a part of his, his uh, I guess you might call it his work of redemption, it's not true. Jesus said it's done. And he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So it was over. Well, the city of Hamburg appealed to Melanchthon in 1546 for what was called a Gutachten. Um, it's, a, it's a really nice word that, you know, whenever you, you deal with, say, for instance, your, your husband, Anne, and, and when he tells you something that you don't agree with, you say, I need a Gutachten, which means that she calls up her daughter and says, do you think I should believe what it is that my husband just told me? And you will say, oh, 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 yes. I say, you've been bought out. <laughs> no, the, um, we, we all need our good Achten. Can you please tell me, um, I used to do this with my mother when my sisters would tell me that I was adopted. I, I, I would say, I need a good Achten. And I'd say to my mother, is that true? And my mother would never lie. That was uh, one of the pre premier things about my mother. She never ever lied to me. And that's comforting because when you have sisters that are persecuting you and you know making life hard on you, a mother always tells the truth. So, the good Octon from Melanchthon was insufficient. And he taught this for the rest of his life, but he died not long after. And, um, and Hamburg continued onward. Well, let's look at the five affirmations of the formula. The descent, they said, involved or included both natures. Um, if you, you have to, although it says he went and preached to the spirits in, uh, in prison, he never did anything after his resurrection that did not also involve his human nature. Really kind of um, this idea that you can kind of split Jesus up and that here's this divine spirit here and then there's this human body here. There are a lot of heresies that were in the early church that saw Jesus in that way. Um, docetism or Gnosticism. But what he did... Now, this, think about, about why this is so comforting. When we go through what we go through in our life... We do so as human beings with all the human fallibility and all the temptations that we even face are very unique to us as human beings. There's not a single one of them that Jesus not only did not understand or go through, but for which he as a human being today is not capable of being able to sympathize with. He is still a human being. It's just that now the divine nature has fully communicated to the human nature all of its attributes so that whatever it is that we can say about God, we can also say about Jesus. 
is God present everywhere? <laughs> Hear those marbles rolling around in there? Is Jesus present everywhere? He has to be. Does God know all things? Does Jesus know all things? Yeah. But also consider what the opposite meant. Can God cry? Did God in Christ cry? Yes. Did, can God sleep? Did God in Christ sleep? This is, this is the great mystery of our faith. That there was such a perfect sharing between them so that the God that we are praying to understands everything about us and our life, not just in some abstract way, but in the concrete way that we understand others as well. I, I've mentioned a couple of times the people that I've called on in the hospitals. And, you know, I, in my life I never suffered very much, and I really never spent any time in a hospital. And, you know, outside of a few football injuries, there wasn't, I mean, in getting the flu every once in a while, that was about it. And then I, I had this kidney issue, and I had to have something put up inside of my ureter, and I got all sick in the hospital. And, and I came back from, it was the worst suffering I'd ever experienced. And, and after that, whenever I walked into a hospital room, all of a sudden I kind of, had a different experience as I saw people suffer. I suppose it's probably good for you doctors to suffer a little bit so that you can become a little bit more empathetic, right? You're all for that. Okay, well, we, will, we have some rods out there. We'll just kind of beat all of our doctors on their way out. But, you know, when that happens, you have to bear in mind there is a reason for the incarnation that this actually brought God and man into a unity, and a unity that was a concrete experience, that God now in Christ understands everything that we go through. So um, this, this formula said no, both natures. Secondly, it took place after his burial, before his resurrection. It, it just The way that the, that the creed reads is the it's a line of succession. It was part of his exaltation, as we've described, his triumphant entry into the fortress of the devil, crushing the devil's power. It was an article of faith, they said. That meant to say, don't think that you can make all kinds of logical human sense out of this. This is just this is the God stuff that's going on here. And it was a teaching for the comfort of Christians. All right, I'm, I'm going to, this is actually what the formula says. I'll, I'll read a paragraph, you read a paragraph with me. I'll read a paragraph, and you read the next paragraph with me, okay? I'm going to start off. There has been a dispute among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning this article also. The questions were raised. When and how, according to our simple Christian creed, did Christ go to hell? Did it happen before or after his death? Did it occur only according to the soul or only according to the deity or according to body and soul, spiritually and corporally? Does this article belong to Christ's suffering or to his glorious victory and triumph? 
together. This article like, cannot be comprehended with our senses and reason, but must be apprehended by faith alone. Therefore, it is our unanimous opinion that we should not engage in disputations concerning this article, but believe and teach it in all simplicity, as Dr. Luther of blessed memory taught in his sermon preached at Torgau in the year 1533, where he explains this article in a holy Christian manner, eliminates all unnecessary questions, and admonishes all Christians to simplicity of faith. It is enough to know that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death, of the devil, and of the eternal damnation of the hellish jaws. How this took place is something that we should postpone until the other world, where there will be revealed to us not only this point, but many others as well which our blind reason cannot comprehend in this life, but which we simply accept. Ah, that's a gut achten response, isn't it? Um, okay, um, um, for those of you that were in first service, um, I, uh, I have convinced you that I can now speak in German. And, uh, and Pastor Grady must be able to, too, because he did a fantastic job of translating. Uh, but we hope that all of you come to our German dinner and the silent auction as well, um, so that we can help to provide some subsidy for our youth as they go over to Germany, but also just very good fellowship. On that same day, we're going to have a guest speaker here, um, uh, the relevance of, of this speaker is related to the fact that we are going to be going to northern Germany with our trip. And the, what they called the Apostle of the North was a guy by the name of Johannes Bugenhagen. I've mentioned him before. Bugenhagen had been Luther's pastor in Wittenberg. Uh, he is actually one of the first people to receive a doctorate from the University of Wittenberg. He um, by himself, became, he ordained more pastors in the Lutheran Church than any other individual in the Reformation. He was all over Germany, ordaining pastors and working with them on what we call church orders or structures. And he helped to, um, not only did he um, help Hamburg um, and Lübeck, but basically became, I guess you might call it, the... Um, kind of the, almost like the Archbishop of Denmark. Um, uh, the King of Denmark literally requested that uh, he be installed into office by Johannes Bugenhagen. But Bugenhagen came from Pomerania. And not many people um, know too much about Pomerania. Everybody thinks it's a dog. <laughs> um, but Pomerania, the, the people of Pomerania were Slavic, by and large. And the Slavs uh, arrived in this section of Europe, this northern part of Germany, after the uh, Lombards and the Vandals left. Um, my, uh, my cousin told me the word Lombard, you know, we, we always think of Lombardy, which is in Italy, right? They were actually Germanic tribes that came down and conquered northern Italy. 
And the word comes from Longobards. They had long beards. So we now know that there were bikers back in those days too. Um, the Vandals, and of course we know what that word means now too, actually were a tribe that, that the word vandalism came from the fact that they, were, um, they went down into Rome and they sacked Rome. They it went also over to, uh, to Spain and they, uh, they took over a good portion of Spain as well. Um, and then these Slavs came in about the 8th century and they entered into this northern part of Germany. Uh, for a while, this uh, Pomerania actually was a part of the uh, Holy Roman Empire and they remained Roman Catholic, but it was Bugenhagen and a guy uh, by the name of Jobst Devitz who um, actually brought Pomerania into the Lutheran Confession. Uh, Johannes Bugenhagen went to university at the University of Greifswald, which is the city that we're going to go and, and have our little seminar in, in northern Germany. And so it is actually, it's just by chance, Solveig's nephew is a pastor named Stephen Preuss. He's in the process of now receiving his degree at the seminary. He's receiving uh, for his second master's, what we call the STM. He is going to be our speaker on the 20th. Um, here in Bible class, and he's going to tell us he's an expert on Johannes Bugenhagen. And so uh, we're going to have him come and tell us all about the wonders of this great confessor, this apostle of the North. Um, had it not been for Denmark coming in, Norway would not have been Lutheran. Uh, and we also think that probably he was primarily responsible for Sweden also coming into the Lutheran confession as well. So Northern Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, um, one person having such an enormous impact was phenomenal. So, um, and then of course, and then after second service, we're going to feast upon the delights of Germanic food. <laughs> it's okay. You like bratwurst? <laughs> He's staring at me. I, uh, well, I wanted to know whether or not you like bratwurst. Okay. <laughs> hey, his ancestors came from Pomerania. That's right. Um, those guys, they are Pomeranians to the core. Let's um, close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and bring you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.